you all care about us when things hit the fan, right? When George Floyd was murdered, all of a sudden, every tech journalist from every major publication was in my DMs. On May 25th, the world witnessed the murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer. This led to a racial reckoning across the country. People and organizations started to have conversations about how to dismantle systemic racism. And on June 2nd, also known as Blackout Tuesday, companies and corporations wanted to be on the right side of history. They posted black boxes with commitments to fight racism all over social media. Some of these companies hired ad agencies to create clever campaigns, commercials, to show that they will do more for diversity and inclusion. And a lot of people, especially black people, wanted more than words. They wanted action and questioned whether these companies would even follow through with their statements and commitments. Who will keep these companies accountable? A young data journalist by the name of Cheryl Dorsey took it upon herself to track over 200 of the biggest tech companies' statements and promises in a spreadsheet. The spreadsheet not only included links to the statements, but the company's diversity reports, the number of black employees, the percentage of black people in leadership and technical roles, and even HBCU recruitment efforts. According to the spreadsheet, these companies have pledged close to $400 million to dismantle systemic racism. You can find that spreadsheet on a site called The Plug. Dorsey is the founder and CEO of The Plug, a new subscription site that covers black tech and innovation. Started in 2016 as a daily newsletter, The Plug now has grown into an emerging media startup with thousands of subscribers, including me, and has raised over $500,000 in equity-free capital. She has attracted advertisers like Goldman Sachs and Capital One because of her exclusive data-driven content and her diverse audience. Dorsey's not only shining a light on black innovators and founders, but the issues that affect them. And that's why I wanted to shine a light on her work in the tech industry with this brand new podcast. From 88.9 Radio Milwaukee, this is Diverse Disruptors, a podcast about those leaders, entrepreneurs, and trailblazers who found their own way to innovate and did so with inclusion and accessibility at the forefront. I'm your host, Tariq Moody, and I'm really passionate about startups, entrepreneurs, innovation, and the overall tech ecosystem. And I listen to a lot of podcasts that focus on these subjects, but it's rare that they feature guests and a host that look like me. Before we talk about this amazing site, The Plug, let's talk about Sherelle Dorsey's origin story and how this aspiring dancer became a data journalist that founded a media startup focused on the black innovation economy. As a black woman growing up in Seattle, like, what was your childhood like? Like, how do you, were you heavily involved in tech as a child? Were your parents around tech? Can you talk to me about your childhood growing up in Seattle? Yeah, I mean, Seattle definitely has a very small black population in comparison to the rest of the city. Um, so it was a very multicultural experience, um, heavily Asian, Southeast Asian, heavily white or Caucasian or what have you, native. So I grew up in a very uh, village-like community um, in terms of my mom was was heavily involved in the political sphere, the social justice sphere, child welfare development sort of sphere as well. I was on the board of everything. Um, and she, she raised me in uh, South End, Seattle, which is kind of one of the most diverse parts of the city where most like black and brown folks owned homes or it was kind of the more affordable part of like a, a maybe a working class neighborhood, I, I would say. 
And so I was raised in a single parent household. And it's interesting because I never thought about it before, but my aunt lived about two minutes up the street from us. And then two minutes from her was my grandfather. So I really did grow up in this kind of like triangle of family within. So very close there. My grandfather was, was more of the technophile in the family and electronics background, fought in Korea, came from, my family's from, from Detroit. Uh, my grandfather left Birmingham as a teenager with his family, as you can imagine, just the, the, the violence and what have you um, there and went to Detroit, got, got to Seattle due to getting a job with Boeing, which a lot of Black folks got their jobs with Boeing and some mm. other tech companies there in the early days. And then eventually he retired from King TV and was a cameraman. Super, super skilled at like carpentry and electronics. And so was the person that would help me with my science projects and things like that. And eventually as like the PC became kind of huge at home, he purchased one for, for me, my cousin. And that was kind of the, the start of everything. We always had electronics in the house, everything from Game Boys to Mario Kart, you know, all of that stuff. My mom, I remember my mom having like the Palm Pilot, which was like really huge back in the day. But her childhood wasn't all screen time. Her family, her mom especially, was intentional about raising her to be curious, multifaceted, cultured, and creative. I was fortunate that my mom was very deep in, in community and always uh, was very diligent about my access to both opportunity. So being the kind of mom that didn't necessarily buy the flyest sneakers, but will buy like season tickets to the children's theater or the science. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of like where we prioritize. It was more culture and learning and community. And so, I remember like on the weekends, uh, there were a couple of couple of just like black conscious folks all coming from different cities who were transplants, but raising their kids in Seattle and wanted us to still have a rich and deep black cultural experience called the Delating Learning Center. So we get up on Saturdays and we would learn black history, hmm. work on projects related to black history. There's probably like 30 or 40 of us and like parents would just come together and teach sections and just teach us about ourselves um, because again, we're, we're in a very whitewashed city and community. Remember, we're talking about Seattle, a city with a 6.8% Black population. So so Blackness, um, you know, there as well as like, you know, the church, the Baptist church as being kind of the central to social justice and racial justice conversations was a big part of that. Black community and some of our cultural institutions were so, so significant. From all these experiences, Sherelle developed her creative side, a passionate part of her identity that would shape who she later becomes. But at this point in her life, as she was getting ready for high school, she didn't let her passion for tech fade. Quite the opposite. She got accepted to a prestigious summer internship in her hometown at none other than Microsoft. As an intern from ages 14 to 18, every year I worked on a different team. You still had to interview for the role and you interview with different teams and you did whiteboard tests and taking apart computers, putting them back together, identifying bugs, things like that. And I mean, we had offices. So, you know, you have an office, you still have, you know, things that you're supposed to accomplish mm -hmm. um, and some different requirements, learning requirements along with your, um, with your manager. But 
you know, with Blacks at Microsoft, it was, they're already having events. And then when we would come during the summer, they would be very strategic in inviting us and pairing us with mentors. I remember Michelle Smith, I think she's at Google now, or she's, she probably has moved on from Google, but she was my initial mentor. And I think every year they paired us with a new mentor. And, and essentially it was like an opportunity for us to like learn, like, what is your career path? So here Sherelle is, a teenager with her own office at Microsoft. That's pretty impressive, right? But remember, she's still a teenager. And just because she was excelling in her AP classes and this internship, she isn't quite ready to say what she wanted to do with the rest of her life. How could she? I couldn't. I think it was really just awkward because you're 14, 15 years old. You don't know what you want to do and what you want to be. Um, mm-hmm. So these folks were just kind of like, yeah, like this is what I do. And, you know, I, I wasn't super convinced that those were the routes I wanted to go because I'm like, in a dark room, you know, debugging stuff all day. And I'm like, I need to be out and see some sun. Like, let's talk. What do y'all, you know? <laughs> and everybody's just like sitting and I'm just like, this is not going to be my life. And I was like, okay, so you guys come, y'all went all the way to college to come and sit in a dark room all day. That's not going to be for me. What was your vision? What was your dream for yourself? I just knew that I I enjoyed creating and I enjoyed, you know, just making things happen in the world. So, you know, as I mentioned, like I was junior and senior class president in high school and I was able to orchestrate a partnership with Jamba Juice. And I convinced my school campus and like principal to let me sell Jamba Juice during lunch and take a commission. <laughs> Entrepreneurship came naturally for Sherelle. I don't even know how they said yes to this. I'm like 15, 16, 17 years old. And I'm like, can you guys just come and sell here? And then we can take a commission and that's how we can sell it. How did that come about? Like, did you reach out to Jamba Juice? You were like, I'm a fan of Jamba Juice. Yeah, and I want them I, like, when Jamba Juice came on the scene, I was a big Jamba Juice fan and I was there like all the time. So they knew my order and <laughs> like, I just got buddy, buddy with the manager. And I was like, Hey, can we like set up a partnership? Because we're going to be raising money for prom. And she was like, yeah. And then I just walked up to the principal. I'm like, this is what I want to do. And they're like, cool. So for like a year straight, like we just like caked off of selling Jamba Juice. And I mean, you know, we were allowed to go off campus for lunch and a lot of folks had cars and stuff, but you know, it was still like a 30 to 45 minute break. So folks were just like, I'd rather just buy like a three, at the time it was like three bucks for a, for a Jamba Juice. So it was like, I'll just buy like a pre-made $3 smoothie you know, from the seniors or the juniors and, you know, like keep it pushing. Um, So that was interesting because it was like my first foray into just like suggesting an idea and creating a partnership like off the bat there. Mm. Um, I mean, when I was a kid, like, you know, they folks would give you these like arts and crafts kits and I would make all kinds of stupid things. And then I'd be at board meetings with my mom and then ask her friends to buy my stuff. And so it was funny because like my mom was like, Sherelle always has money. And she was out there working for it between selling art projects the jamba juice and her gig at microsoft in high school she was busy she was doing everything she could to set up an independent entrepreneurial future for herself but even all that going on she craved another outlet an outlet totally different than hawking smoothies i was a tap dancer for for uh for quite a while and i taught when i was 12. and as you'll hear she approached tap dancing with the same sort of enterprising attitude the dance teacher, she had like, she had like sprained her ankle or something like that one year and asked me to come and assist her. And I ended up um, actually choreographing a dance for the recital and pitching it to her. Like, can we do this for the recital? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, and then she just eventually was like, do you just want to teach? 
And so like I would teach three, four classes on a Saturday and eventually took over more classes. And it was making like 30 bucks an hour, like just teaching dance, which was a lot of money for a teenager. And so I I knew that like art was always going to be part of what I did. And then I would convince her to let me use the studio on the days that there weren't classes and I would teach private lessons. So I would Mm. cake like all through high school with just like, I'll teach this, I'll teach that, I'll create programs, what have you. And I ended up dancing with Savion Glover uh, when he came to Seattle one year. So, oh, wait, 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 you can't just pass through that. (laughs) Yeah. Savion Glover's like known for tap dance. Did your mom get you into dance? Like, where where does dance come from? Yeah. Like, you're a tap, you're dance. My mom, I think she really just put me into dance classes um, because I I had way too much energy. And so (laughs) she needed a place to like drop me off to like expel some of that energy. So it sounds like your mom was just basically like, I got to get rid of you. You're going to TAF. You're going to dance class. You're going to dance. I, I, you got to stay busy, girl. Like so it, was, it, was kind of, it was kind of like selfish <laughs> on her part. Sounds like more than like, I want you to expand your culture. No, you just got to get away from <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I don't think she she thought that it would like eventually consume my life and really shape me because, you know, I, I would do plays and, and all of that kind of stuff um, in school and, you know, even on professional level, especially in the Black theater space. And so like we did Black Nativity for Intamon Theater, like which ran forever in Seattle for a while. That was like my first professional uh, performance. But... Yeah, I I think too, you know, my mom was very keen, as I said earlier, on ensuring that I was in spaces with black and brown folks as well. I think it was also one of those self-esteem building things where it was like being comfortable with being on stage, being comfortable with having lots of folks around as you're presenting, you know, really kind of building some of that executive, we call it executive presence now. Mm-hmm. But I think just like back in the day, it was like building your confidence, especially as a, as a black girl, right? It's like, I'm taking ballet and tap with, with other black folks and by black teachers. And, you know, traditionally, when you go to some of these other places that are a lot more professional, if you don't have the right body type and the right legs and the right feet, like you, you're like, look, listen, listen, you can't do ballet, <laughs> right? They tell you that. Um, mm. I remember in Seattle as well, we have um, a Northwest Tap Connection. And um, I remember, you know, the creative directors would always bring in dancers from Dance Theater of Harlem and they'd bring in dancers from Alvin Ailey. And, you know, they would lead like a couple master classes because they wanted us to know that your body type um, is not a problem. We're going to show you how to do these particular movements mm. as with having a black body, you know, or a black girl's body. And so, you know, I, I really credit my mom for exposing me enough. I took it a lot further than I think that she anticipated that I would. But that was a safe community. You know, it was a safe space. Um, For me and for other, I think, black and brown families, especially in a very white city, to just Mm. have her own thing. She definitely had her own thing. Things, really. Between dance, her art, that internship at Microsoft, and let's not forget about that Jamba Juice hustle. With all that going on in her life, she developed a certain confidence early on. That executive presence she mentioned. And as high school graduation crept closer, everyone was asking her, what was she going to do next for college? Yeah, I'll be honest. I wasn't as, I wasn't as, um, I don't think I was ready for school. I just knew that mm. it was something I was expected to do. Yeah. And initially I had wanted to go to Spelman my entire life because my cousins went to Morehouse and Clark Atlanta and I had 
Spelman paraphernalia all over my room. And I just knew I was going to be a Spelman woman. And then my mom made the mistake of taking me and my god sister to New York. And we went to go see a couple of Broadway shows and just experienced the city. We stayed with one of her friends in a, in a, brown, in a brownstone in Harlem. And so I was like, no, I got to be in New York. This is where it is. And I was dancing and I was thinking I can come out here and dance with Savion. And like, this is where I need to be. This is where the action is. It's kind of funny that like tech was like a side thing now, not even, it was all about dance. It was point. dance. It was art. Um, I, I, you know, it was, it was definitely entrepreneurship because I just always had big visions for where this could go. And tech really helped me. It helped enable me because I knew how to, build tools and things to support those things. And so, you know, and, and when you're young, like your world is so small. So going to New York, it's always been fast paced. It's always been a hustle. It's always been like, create something out of nothing. Like these are my people, right? <laughs> like, like that's how I felt in New York. And so when I, when I decided to go to college, it wasn't that like tech wasn't on my mind. It was that I wanted to be in an environment where people were just creating. Joelle fell in love with the city. She couldn't picture herself anywhere else, so she enrolled in the Fashion Institute of Technology on a path to study the business side of fashion, right in the heart of New York City. Did it live up to your expectations? Like, you know, when people say, I'm going to New York, I love New York. You know, like my first year, I went to Howard University. My first year, I was like, I'm going to Howard. I got a scholarship. The first year was brutal for me. Yeah. Like, I was going to like, I'm from Atlanta. I was going to like, I'm transferring back to Georgia Tech. I'm, I'm, I'm going to Georgia Tech. Yeah. Then I, and like, I decided, my parents said, like, you stick it out one more year, you know? And I fell in love. Like, Howard is my family. I love it, right? So what was your experience? Like, did you go like, I love New York. This is great. It, it's what you wanted to be. Or you're like, uh, dude, I'm, I want to get it. Uh, Mom, come get me. I will say, you know, I, I mean, I love New York from the, from the very beginning. I think it was a lot of freedom to give to someone who had been relatively sheltered to be like in this huge city at 18 years old with like no supervision. I think like I, I barely like passed my classes my first semester. Like I was definitely on academic probation. And New York was, it was harsh. It was brutal. It was inspiring. It was, you know, it was, it was everything I needed to be refined. You know, I needed to grow up. I needed to see the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, I needed to know how to navigate spaces with different kinds of people. Things don't surprise me as much because New York is so in your face all the time. And, and I mean, there's there's so many beautiful parts of the art and the culture and the ability to be. And growing up in Seattle, even though I was in this great structure of, of Blackness, you know, sometimes my experiences at school with other Black folks was that, oh, you know, you're in these classes, like you're acting like a white girl, you know, like mm. that part was kind of rough because we weren't used to seeing what does black genius and excellence look like. You dealt with that in Seattle where people were question, question your race because you're in an AP. Class. Yeah. It was a lot of that, like, you know, or, you know, it was a lot of the, it, it's one of the running jokes is that you'll never see a black, find a black couple in Seattle because like people are, it's a very interracial kind of city. And so and it can be harsh for black women at the end of the day. I, I also, loved New York because I felt loved and I felt seen as a black mm. and I felt I felt seen as a black person I felt seen as a black woman people were used to seeing 
smart, well-educated black folks in spaces. Um, and I know there are certain cities where they don't, they're not used to that, you know, at the end hmm. of the day. Um, and New York has so much nuance and it has so much visibility and, and so many different kinds of characters um, that it, it was less shocking and surprising. And I remember coming back like my first semester for maybe it was like a Christmas break and I had completely like grown out my hair and just rocking this like big Afro, big hoop earrings. And I remember my uncle's like, are you on drugs? Like what's going on? But it was like, I was myself and I was free. And like, this was a regular look in New York City. Right. So, you know, it was like it was like you're far, too far out of the norm in certain spaces. People think that like you're totally eccentric and New York is just like this is a regular Tuesday, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. So I needed that. I needed to feel seen. I needed to discover myself. I can't stress enough how important that is as a person of color to feel that way, to have a seat at the table and not be the only one like you who has a chair. When you look around, who's in charge? Who has the power? Who is open to new ideas and from whom? Representation is so important because it brings a sense of belonging, one of the conditions you must have for creativity, for true innovation. While we may not be in New York, we can still work toward better representation in our own tech community. And in a lot of ways, we're on the ground floor. The tech community here is just beginning to build itself up which means we can take steps that would benefit everyone. More representation, more innovation, and we can hold our city accountable. Coming up in the second half of our conversation, Sherelle talks about how she's doing the very same thing, holding tech companies accountable for inclusion with her startup, The Plug. We'll talk about how she launched it next on Diverse Disruptors. Radio Milwaukee is on a mission. And if you're here to discover new perspectives on music in Milwaukee, then you're on a mission too. Join today to support the programming you love. Visit RadioMilwaukee.org and click the orange heart. And we're back on our pilot episode of Diverse Disruptors, our newest podcast dedicated to sharing stories from the minds of diverse entrepreneurs and innovators. I'm Tariq Moody. On this episode, my guest Sherelle Dorsey, founder and CEO of The Plug, a website with a mission somewhat like mine, is on this podcast to hold the innovation economy accountable for inclusivity and to tell their stories. Let's go back to New York with Sherelle, as she, without knowing it yet, was on the path to launching her company. So you're like tap dancing, fashion, and then I get to know you because of The Plug and data journalism, Talk about that bridge. What was that bridge to bring the fashion data journalism to this fashion and tap dance to data journalism? Where did that begin? You know, it's um, it's interesting because like this is where I got deeply back to my roots. So as I was kind of, you know, I, I graduated during the heart of recession, got my first full time job with a really incredible designer who actually ended up speaking at my graduation and then hired me like the next day. Um, and about six months, you know, into the job, like, I mean, the market was just really bad. So, you know, there was a massive layoff. I ended up, you know, giving up my apartment in Harlem and moving back home to Seattle, which was hard because you kind of feel like, oh, I haven't made it yet in New York. So now I'm a failure. Did that like really affect you mentally? It did. It did. But I, I think more so, I thought that there was going to be a specific path. I thought, you know, I, I'd work on e-commerce teams 
you know, for these big fashion and beauty brands and like live this fabulous penthouse life because that, that was kind of, that was kind of like my mentors spaces, like the black women I saw, that's who they were. Um, and, and so I thought that's where I was supposed to go, even though it didn't feel a hundred percent right. It was kind of like, all right, this is what I'm supposed to do. You know, I've got a salary for the first time in my life. Um, and so, yeah, going back, it was like, now what do I do? I don't have, you know, a job. I'm freelancing, writing or what have you. I have this like weird blog and people keep sending me product and like, that's cool. And I get invited to parties, but I don't feel like I am on the right path. And I'm trying to figure out what that is. And I started building up my work in terms of uh, writing and, um, and and doing some reporting. And I just, I had, was just continuing to see this proliferation of Black folks and, and business and tech and energy and, and, you know, green technology. How long were you in Seattle? When you- just about a year. And my mom was just like, you need to go back to New York. Like, there's nothing for you here in Seattle. Mm. There's just nothing for you. I think she could see, like, who you are and what you've become. Like, you're not going to, you're not going to stretch that in Seattle. I ended up moving back actually with one of my college friends. We ended up living together in her stepdad's house with a pool. We're just like in Jersey, like trying to figure it out. She was like a jewelry designer, like freelancing. And we were really broke, but like we had this fabulous life and we throw these fabulous parties and we go to Martha's Vineyard. And we had like negative accounts. Like I kid you <laughs> not, we had no money. I think there was one point where the like fridge broke and we had to put our food in the snow. <laughs> like, oh, wow. So bad. I think that pivot was rough. Um, But it was great because especially during the recession, you really learned there is no loyalty from jobs. So having multiple streams of income were going to be the things that really like assisted you in your journey. Um, And then I eventually thought, well, maybe I'll go to grad school. Maybe I'll go to grad school, study policy, think about like, let's get back into the roots around social justice and tech. Like how do we make systems move? And uh, right before I was going to submit my personal statement to, I think it was like new school I was applying for. I was on this email list and I opened it up and it talked about this public policy fellowship. And it was like a paid fellowship opportunity. You'll get to like work in government and, you know, really learn how to make systemic change. And I applied and went through the interview process and I got it. And it was weird because I'm like, I'm the fashion girl at the time. I had had locks, half my head was shaved. I had this like crazy design, this guy named... Money, Money Mike in like Times Square used to cut my hair and he would tell me about all the motorcycles he was buying. And like, <laughs> I'm like, and I, now I'm going to like Connecticut of all places and like all these Ivy League, you know, folks around the table, straight lace, gray suits. And I'm like this weird black girl with the multicolored hair and half shaven head. So it was like such a crazy pivot. I had never been in Connecticut a day in my life and just packed up the U-Haul and was like, all right. <laughs> You know, got, got my food out the snow and was like, Let's <laughs> and so, yeah, I worked for a year with the, the mayor of Bridgeport at the time. What kind of work were you doing there? This public policy? Yeah. So working on things like youth initiatives, specifically around education, helping to um, helping to attract more charter schools into what was a devastating um school environment. So I learned a lot about education and some of the challenges and perils there. Um, I think it really it made me also realize like how underdeveloped our public schools are. Clearly, like, you know, this issue is not just a Connecticut issue. This is a nationwide mm. issue for our schools. So for most of us, our high school diplomas weren't worth the paper that, you know, they were printed mm. 
one. Um, so that was a really harsh awakening. Um, and also just to continue to see disenfranchisement when it when it breaks down into race. Were you the only black woman there? I was only black in my in my program. Um, okay. Bridgeport, in and of itself, was is the blackest city in, or the brownest city, I should say. And I got a chance to work with a very, very multi multi racial group within the mayor's office. So I wasn't alone in that sense. I was just alone in like this cold little town um, with no family and no friends outside of work. As her fellowship came to a close, Sherelle decided to leave her career in politics in Bridgeport, where it began. She says, simply put. She missed tech. She saw how big tech companies were changing the world, how they were moving quick, and she wanted to play a role in that. I was hearing good things about Charlotte. I liked the proximity to New York and to D.C. Um, I thought it was an up-and-coming city. I liked the investment in transportation and infrastructure. And I had moved moved to Charlotte with no job, like stayed, you know, stayed with the aunt for a couple 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 months, um, and eventually landed at Uber, um, which was which was really cool and fortuitous. So I was at Uber for a little over a year and a half helped to run the Charlotte market, um, eventually moved over to Google Fiber. And during this time, I mean, I had kind of quickly started to ramping back up into tech, building contacts, going to conferences, and continuing to write and pitch stories to like The Root and Black Enterprise, uh, Fast Company, what have you. And I started to build up my reputation around, you know, the the Black tech journalist that was covering Black folks in tech. It was, it was just great to kind of be back in that space again. And just the more that I did it and the more that I, I realized... I'm tired of this story that we're not here, especially having mm-hmm. grown, growing up in Seattle and being taught by Black folks and having been mentored by Black engineers. I'm like, why do we keep saying that Black folks aren't in tech? Like, this is just not true. It truly just was like a frustration. Um, and then as I was, you know, continuing to read, you know, industry news, I was just like, okay, we know enough about Elon Musk. We know enough about Zuckerberg, what have you. Like, when are we going to start talking about the Jewel Burks? When are we going to start talking about, like, all these other folks who are building dynamic companies? That's right. When are we going to start talking about these companies? This is exactly why I wanted to start this podcast series with Sherelle. We have that in common. Telling these stories of Black folks in tech is a must. And that's how our company, The Plug, was born with that same mission. And so I just started creating a daily newsletter. And I was like, I want to call it The Plug because people keep telling me like, you're The Plug. Every time we they, they mention or ask about a certain company, like, oh yeah, you got to check out such and such in Tennessee. And they're like, how do you know this? And I'm like, I'm, I'm a nerd. Like, <laughs> first and foremost, I'm a nerd. And second of all, like, this is just a space that I deeply enjoy learning about. Um, and so I just had, you know, I think I was probably at Google Fiber and I was like, I would get up at six in the morning. I put together this newsletter, some of my thoughts, talking about my adventures, who I was meeting. Um, and then like, you know, find a couple of news stories that I thought didn't just keep re- repeating the, the, the deficit narrative about who we aren't. And it started to grow and people started to really look to it. And, and honestly, it was 100% experimental. And then about two years in of being consistent, um, actually six months in of being consistent, I mean, I got an email from Capital One. They're like, hey, we want to sponsor this. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, cool. I mean, yeah, yes, I will take your money. Absolutely. <laughs> Let's do it. And then I, I decided I truly want to be a real journalist. And, you know, being at Uber, it was all data driven. It was all every single week, like we're measuring the business. And that like really, really got me back into a technical aspect. And um, I knew that like, you know, being in kind of the marketing and sales side was only going to get me so far within the industry. And so I thought, maybe I should go try to get some kind of certifications in data. Like I'm already doing this from a work perspective, but like how can I learn more and get a bit more refined? Um, and all the programs were like 13 months. And then I stumbled on like Columbia's program and it was a 10 month master's. And I was like, okay, this is going to suck. 
because it's going to be like a truncated Ivy League degree with like computation in like a 10 month period. But like, I'd rather just go through that and have a master's. And if worse comes to worse, I can go teach. But let's go try it out. I didn't even think I would get in. Um, and I got in and I was like, okay, great. I can, I can really refine myself as a, as a journalist and as a technologist um, and kind of getting back into that. And I kind of knew following that, um, you know, like right, right after graduations, like we announced a partnership with Vice and started co-publishing with them. And then, you know, the following year I got into an accelerator program and I was like, I'm just going to go for broke with the plug and make it the black, you know, the black Bloomberg of tech news and like, let Let's just see what happens. Um, so it was all kind of not planned, but everything came together as it was supposed to, but super, super nonlinear. But talk about some of the challenges. Like a lot of people like get to see the success and like, wow, I want to be the success. And they, they don't realize all the headaches and stress that goes into building something. So talk about, did you have some stories to sell, tell about some of the challenges or were there moments where you're like, oh my God, what am I doing? Like, I, I can't do this. Oh, every day. <laughs> every day as an entrepreneur, you're like, gosh, like, this is all a farce, right? <laughs> like, you know, like, gosh. I mean, I think there's definitely pushback early on where folks are like, you know, can't other can't other publications already do this? And I'm like, no, they're not. That's why, that's why this is here. Mm-hmm. They're not doing it. They don't see the value in it. Um, the journalism industry, of course, like, having changed drastically because the ad revenue is no longer there because the the Amazons, Facebooks and Googles have eaten it all. So like, no, it doesn't make sense to go start a media company because media is not surviving. Like 40,000 journalists have been laid off this year alone. And even when I was in grad school, there were like two or three publications that actually completely shut down. But I, I, I've had to stick to my mission and to my value of, you know, black and brown innovation is hypercritical to the way that society is moving forward and it is informing what's happening to the business climate. And I think the analysis and the research is not um, congruent. I don't think it's comprehensive and I don't think it's valued as much as it should be. And I wanted to bring that to the forefront. And that's why like one of our tagline is smart reporting, less noise, smarter reporting, because the pieces that you do see on black and brown founders, nine times out of 10 are very fluffy or very like Here's this magical black person, or they're very scathing and just discouraging because you're looking at the same kind of data that gets regurgitated year after year. And I think it's just unimaginative. I think it's unimaginative from a research standpoint. I think it's unimaginative from a reporting standpoint. It's like you all care about us when things hit the fan, right? When George Floyd was murdered, all of a sudden, every tech journalist from every major publication was in my DMs. And I'm like, you know, when our, our pieces go viral, our data visualizations, our data sets go viral. It's like, I did a piece in, um, I did a piece in grad school, you know, just quickly, it took me like maybe a day to pull together all of the Black-owned co-working spaces across the U.S. Like that piece went viral. And it's like, you all haven't even asked. That's how little that you all think about our contributions to spaces and how lack of creativity of actually investigating and, and asking about the various markets that black folks are a part of, like no one even asked how many spaces are black owned. Right. But we care so much about diversity every single year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just, I just honestly just got frustrated. I was like, I want to build a platform. And not only that, I also want to create a premium product from this platform that people will place value on because people don't place value on our lives or our research. 
everyone thinks, oh, you should do this for free. You should have a nonprofit. You should. I'm like, why? You all aren't building nonprofits. Y'all are building profitable companies that you are selling, you're exiting, you're liquidating from, you're building wealth and you're starting the next thing. So guess what? I want to do that too, because I also want to be able to build wealth and pass something down, you know, through my family and within my communities. So for me, I'm very dogged on what I stand for and why, because I think visibility and storytelling is important. And I also think it's important to the way that we're shaping society. What's next for the plug? If somebody hearing this for the first time says the plug, it was the data. What else is, how else would you describe the plug to somebody out there? who is hearing this for the first time. Yeah, so we do reporting on the Black innovation economy. We're covering everything from startups to investment to research. Um, You know, we're asking deep questions about how is business moving forward? What's new and next in society? And who are the Black folks leading those initiatives? Um, We're doing examination. We are, you know, trying to look critically at things as well. It's not just like a uh, let's celebrate black folks or what have you. It's really like, what's what's happening? What are the conversations we're not having? You know, we're, ta- we're now all of a sudden we have all these new black funds, but still in terms of, you know, the, the amount of money under uh, management, we still have these separate but, but unequal practices, you know, like in black fund managers aren't saviors at the end of the day. You know, we've got a lot of showboating when it comes to this diversity in tech, you know, folks who have great platforms to do great PR, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're actually hiring black folks. Mm. And so I think there's some some watchdog nature to it. And there's also some aspirational, here's what's possible. Um, there's a couple of just incredible founders that are building enterprise software that don't get enough shine that I think that we need to really pay attention to. And where do you see yourself next year or five years or where do you see the plug in next in next year or five years? Yeah, the future is that, you know, in, in a couple of years, we're, we're purchased by a big, um, you know, either media company or tech company that has a focus on journalism and news that can make us 20 times better. Quite honestly, I have a new goal, and that is uh, once I've completed my work with the plug and I've gotten it to a very phenomenal place, I would like to help to serve on this communications team for Stacey Abrams for you know whatever role she decides to go up for, whether it's governor again or she decides to run for president. I think that's where my talent and skills are going to be best utilized. And, you know, definitely some kind of VC investing space as well. And then, quite honestly, I'll probably be very, very tired. If I'm honest, I will go, you know, buy a couple acres and, you know, create a cabin for my books and my little animals and a couple, you know, a couple of bottles of wine. And like, I'll just retire with me and my little farm and my books. <laughs> and that's it. That's nice. And uh, what would you say, finally, the last question? So if someone heard this, a young black woman, a young black man, um, who's like, man, I want to get into this. Like, what advice would you give them? There's so many resources and communities. I know um, there are so many accelerators and programs. There's Valence Community for Black Professionals. It's like a net, it's like a LinkedIn for Black professionals within the tech space. Clubhouse has become an, an incredible and emerging platform to talk with folks within tech and business. And I think just like subscribing to the content and the people who are really driving conversations. You know, everyone from you know an Arlen Hamilton, and also educate yourself from on the researchers like Ruha Benjamin, who talks a lot about race and technology and this idea of racial bias within tech. So that's a new gym code, right? Yeah. Does, like. Yeah. yeah, lots of theories on the new gym code. Um, there's there's so many different ways to get involved um, from a training perspective. I mean, everyone from Google to IBM to Facebook has like certification, AWS, Amazon, AWS. They have certifications, you know, it's like, do you don't necessarily have to go get a 40 year degree, you know, if you want to get these certifications like 
pick up a certificate. Some of these things are free. Some of them are very low cost, but they position you, especially at this time where we're in the middle of a pandemic, they really do help position you to be competitive um, and to get jo- get a job like without having to, to, you know, to invest in a four-year education. Thank you so much, Cheryl. Awesome, awesome. Cheryl Dorsey, CEO and founder of The Plug, a premium news platform dedicated to sharing stories from black tech entrepreneurs and the issues that affect them. You can check it out at tpinsights.com. We'll also drop a link on the landing page of this podcast. You can follow us there at radiomilwaukee.org slash diverse disruptors. Sherelle's story is such a great starting point for what I hope to accomplish in season one of this podcast. To share stories on how diverse founders and innovators are changing the tech industry and the world. We're launching season one of this podcast on March 1st, 2021 with a great lineup of guests, including Arlen Hamilton, who Sherelle mentioned She's a tech founder of Backstage Capital, $36 million venture fund for underrepresented founders. Plus, I'll bring you conversation with Nash Ahmed, founder of Undock, Kelly Cambry, founder of Blue Studios, an on-demand STEM platform, and we'll even share the journey of Derek Westbrook, a black sommelier. Subscribe now so you don't miss episode one of Diverse Disruptors, coming March 1st. We'll have new episodes every week. Just a reminder, take a minute right now to find the subscribe button on whatever platform you're listening on, hit it, and keep in touch with me. I'm Tariq Moody, and I can't wait to bring you more of these stories on Season 1 of Diverse Disruptors. Diverse Disruptors is hosted by Tariq Moody, executive produced by myself, Nate Immig, with production help from Kenny Perez. Handcrafted sonic inspiration from the License Lab. Marketing by Sarah Maclar and Aaron Bagata. Community outreach by Maddie Reardon. Development support from Maggie Corey. 88.9's program director is Dori Zori. Station director is Jordan Lee. And 88.9's executive director is Kevin Suker. We extend a huge thank you to our members for making this and all content on 88.9 possible. You can find out more about membership at radiomilwaukee.org by clicking the orange heart. Diverse Disruptors is an original podcast production of 88.9 Radio Milwaukee.